All right, well, good morning again. We are back in Luke this morning after a little detour in Joshua. We'll have to spend some more time in Joshua in the future. A lot of great, great things to learn there. But we're back in our study of, of Luke. And we find ourselves in Luke chapter 3. Verses 21 to 22. Luke chapter 3, 21 to 22. This is the baptism of Jesus. All four Gospels record this for us. And we are going to save the genealogy for next week, Lord willing, and uh, just focus on this, uh, these two verses. I know, two verses, uh, but there is uh, great riches for us here. Let me read the text before us. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form, like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. This is the word of God. Well, when I was recently at Shepherd's Conference, uh, one of the great benefits to me is the book tent. They have, I mean, thousands of books, a massive tent that they erect in their parking lot, and there's all these publishers, and they're discounted. It's like, you know me going to Disney World, you know, for a kid, you know, it's like, it's just walking around, oh, checking all these books and seeing them, it's therapeutic for me, I do have a book problem, but, uh, um, but it's fun to talk, even walk through with friends, and, and, you know, oh, have you read this, yeah, yeah, and you can kind of decide what you're going to get, every once in a while, you're not sure, eh, I don't know if I should get this, and you turn the book over, and you start to read the endorsements on the back, and you see, like, who, who's, who likes this book? You know, who, if you can't walk with a friend who knows what they're talking about, you can read the endorsements. And so maybe you see some professors or pastors that you, you respect and trust their opinions. You've been helped by their ministry. And so they are saying, this is a great book. Uh, some books I have, there's like 10 pages of endorsements before you get to the introduction. And you go, okay, I guess this is, you know, especially if you know a lot of the names, you're like, I got to read this book. This is uh, well-endorsed. And uh, so that can give you more encouragement at times to, to read a particular book. And the reason I say that is because this passage that we're looking at is somewhat of an endorsement, uh, a Trinitarian endorsement of the ministry of Jesus Christ, saying, you need to read this book. You need to listen to him. And in fact, this is one, as one commentator said, one of the most Christologically important passages in Luke's gospel, the other being the transfiguration and on both of those occasions, we have the same statement from the Father to the Son. This is my beloved Son. With you, I am well pleased. The only difference in the transfiguration is that the Father says, listen to him at the transfiguration. And so we have the ultimate endorsement of the ministry of Jesus before it begins publicly. And it's the endorsement of the triune God. Luke has been giving Theophilus, the man to whom this gospel is addressed, and us by extension, 
the credentials of Jesus. As he begins his gospel, he's preparing us for Jesus' public ministry. I don't know about you, but I can't wait to get into the, the start of this ministry. And we've, we've seen Jesus born, um, grow up a little bit, the, the preparation of John the Baptist. It just the tension is building and, and now we get to the baptism. But what Luke is trying to do is build the credentials of Jesus by giving many witnesses, many human witnesses uh, of who Jesus is, what he was predicted to be. But now it's as if he calls his star witness to the stand, the triune God, to affirm who Jesus is. Of course, then following this passage, we'll see the historical credentials that Jesus has as he gives us his genealogy, similar to Luke, but slightly different. And we'll see how he's connecting Jesus to fulfill the role that he has. He's qualified. He has the right credentials. And then, of course, we'll see that he has credentials as he uh, obeys in the wilderness as he's tempted by Satan and he fulfills the role that Adam failed in to show that he is qualified to be our redeemer. And then he will begin his ministry in earnest in the middle of chapter four. So we are, we are working towards the beginning of his ministry and this is really the focal point of the credentials in that the triune God affirms him. Now, what is the Trinity? What is the Trinity? This term, Trinity, uh, you know, you have trying to bring together two ideas, the oneness of God and then the threeness of God. Tri, right, three, and then unity, one. Uh, the term was coined by a man named Tertullian in the early church as there were battles raging about the nature of Christ, the nature of God, the deity of the Spirit, of the Son, and of the Father, and how we understand the oneness of God. God is one, and yet the, uh, the three persons. And so while uh, Tertullian coined the term Trinity, he didn't make up the doctrine of the Trinity. I hope you realize that. Uh, a term can be given or assigned to a truth that's already present, but as it's formulated in a particular way, he was trying to give expression to that uh, and use an extra biblical uh, term to describe that. Uh, of course, we see the, the triune God revealed both in the Old and the New Testaments. And, uh, and so the early church was really getting very clear in their statements, creeds, and confessions about what we believe about the triune God. The Athanasian Creed is a great expression of that. Uh, I think we have a link on our website. Even you can go read that. It'll take you about two minutes to read, but it's a great distillation of the, tr the, the Trinity. But in essence, what we are saying about the Trinity is that God is one, has one nature or essence which subsists in three distinct persons. So it's not multiple gods, one God, but he's not a single person God like Allah is described as. He is three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. Augustine wrote concerning the Trinity. He said, quote, In no other subject is error more dangerous or inquiry more laborious or the discovery of truth more profitable. How true. Uh, it is dangerous in dealing with this because uh, 
many have spoken poorly and wrongly about the Trinity and moved into various heresies in church history and those have been, uh, the truth has been clarified each time someone has brought forth a, ver- a different errant view which has actually served the church to be clearer and clearer over time. But also, it is very laborious to think through some of these issues and hold them in our minds. Of course, we are finite creatures dealing with the infinite God. And before we, we lament that reality, it should be a great delight because we, we don't worship a God that we can fully understand and figure out and then put on the shelf. No, we worship a God that we will never fully plumb the depths of, and you kind of come to these walls or you, you come to the depths and you go, I, I can't, I don't know if I can go farther. And, and yet that is the moment of worship where you realize just how great God is. Just so when you think you're starting to grasp some concept, you, you go, there's so much more here that I can't even wrap my arms around. The Trinity is so foundational to Christianity. In fact, you don't have Christianity without the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, Shed, one uh, old, uh, theologian said Christianity in the last analysis is Trinitarianism. Uh, Herman Bavinck said this, quote, the entire Christian belief system, all of special revelation, stands or falls with the confession of God's triunity. It is the core of the Christian faith, the root of all its dogmas, the basic content of the new covenant, the essence of the Christian religion itself. When it comes to the doctrine of the Trinity, there are two especially helpful passages, many more, that uh, are found in the Gospels that help us to stay clear on the Trinity. And one of those is the baptism of Jesus and the other is the Great Commission. Because in both of these, we see uh, all three persons, which are one and yet uh, simultaneously acting. And uh, so it it guards against the... one heresy known as modalism or sabellianism, which think of modalism as moodalism. The idea is like God has different moods that he enters into at different times. Like maybe you get moody and you enter into this mood and then that mood. The idea was that God just kind of manifests himself at different times in different ways. So sometimes he manifests himself as the father and then he changes his mood and he, now he manifests himself as the son. But, but he's not three distinct persons, but rather just manifesting himself in those ways. Um, and so what, what you find though in our passage is that just simply won't work because here you have all three persons acting in concert simultaneously, inseparably in this one act uh, of Jesus's baptism. The same is true for the Great Commission that we are to baptize in the singular name uh, of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, showing the oneness in the singular name and yet the distinction of persons uh, in that baptism. So we, we have these uh, helpful formulations and yet this is a doctrine that is hard to pick out one verse that teaches everything that's there in the doctrine, but rather takes us to put our arms around the whole of scripture. And yet this is a helpful place for us to look to see some of this doctrine because we see all three persons acting and it is somewhat representative of uh, the relationship of the triune God. So with that, we want to look at the baptism of Jesus according to Luke and see what the delight of the Trinity is so that we might delight in the Trinity as well. Now, what's interesting about Luke's account of the baptism is he's not that focused on the actual baptism. <laughs> it's almost like the baptism serves to point to what 
the father says about the son, the affirmation of the son. In fact, he doesn't tell us who baptized Jesus, where Jesus was baptized. That's almost a, a side point, whereas the other gospels tell us those things. The main verb is related to the father speaking about the son. One writer summarizes the section by saying at his baptism, Jesus is praying and is equipped with the Spirit's power and assured of the Father's pleasure. So as we look at this, it's easy to break down. There's three persons of the triune God, three different things going on here. And so we want to look at three simultaneous or inseparable actions of the one triune God endorsing the ministry of Jesus so that you and I would listen to him. We're going to see the son's actions, the spirit's anointing, and the father's affirmation. Let's first consider the son's actions in verse 21. It says there, And when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened. Luke doesn't tell us, like we said, that it was John uh, or the conversation that John and Jesus had, which Matthew tells us about, the dialogue as Jesus comes to be baptized and John kind of has a discussion with Jesus, I, I should be baptized by you and, and, and you're telling me that I should, that you, you need to be baptized by me? And they have that interchange. That's not really Luke's focus here. This would also be uh, even though Luke doesn't tell us, the first time that John and Jesus actually met one another as adults. Uh, in fact, this is the way that John would know who Jesus was, who the Messiah was, that he would come to be baptized by him. And that's what Luke, John tells us in John chapter 3. So uh, it seems as though they've never met each other. Now, they had that little play date that we remember from when John jumped in his mother's womb. Uh, and yet they were both in the womb at that time. Here, now they meet each other for the first time. So Jesus is not, he hasn't begun his public ministry yet. John has come on the scene as the forerunner and Jesus is now coming to be baptized and identify himself as the one who is going to save his people from their sins as the servant of Isaiah. The focus that Luke makes in his gospel is actually on Jesus' praying Jesus is praying. It's like as Jesus was baptized, like everyone else was, he was and he was praying. That's really his focus. Now, that is a, a main focus actually of, of Luke in his gospel is prayer. And, and in particular, the prayers of Jesus. If you kind of just survey the gospel, you'll see that Jesus is praying at key moments throughout his ministry. In, in Luke chapter 5, verse 16, it says, but he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. Kind of a summary statement. Chapter 6, verse 12. Chapter 6, verse 12 says, In these days he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in, pray, continued in prayer to God. And this is before he chooses the 12 apostles. He devotes his time to prayer. In chapter 9, verse 18 And it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? A pivotal moment there. 
as he asks the disciples this key question. He's found praying. Same chapter, verse 28. And about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up to the mountain to pray. This is the transfiguration, of course. He's praying there. So notice, same statement set up from the Father to the Son, both times highlighting, Luke does, the prayers of Jesus. Chapter 11, verse 1, now Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. Towards the end of the gospel, in chapter 22, verse 32, it says, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. He's talking about Simon and about to be sifted, and yet he's praying for his perseverance. And then, of course, he prays uh, on the Mount of Olives in the garden as he's preparing to be betrayed. Of course, we have him praying on the cross. Jesus' ministry is punctuated by prayer. He is a man of prayer. Of course, that's a model for us, but that's really not Luke's emphasis. His, I think the, the focus Jesus, uh, that Luke is making about Jesus in praying is his communion with God, his communion with the Father. That's what prayer evidence is, doesn't it? Communion with God. When you and I go to the Lord in prayer, it's an expression of our relationship with him, our communion with him. It is one of the things we, I think all of us universally, wish we did better and more, that we had better communion with God in prayer. And yet Jesus is such a model here of close fellowship and communion with the Father and the Spirit. It's evidence in his prayer. Uh, of course, John 1.1 and 1 John 1.2 speak about the Son being with the Father. And it's this phrase that speaks just like in the face of the Father. There's this close fellowship, close communion that they share. The Son has enjoyed the closest of fellowship, the closest uh, communion with the Father through the Spirit from all eternity. And here we see it just manifesting even in the incarnation as Jesus is praying at this pivotal moment. And so we, we see highlighted by Luke this communion of the Son with the Father through the Spirit. But why would one who is in close fellowship and communion with God already need to be baptized, especially in a baptism of repentance? Right? So Jesus is coming to be baptized and John's baptism has already been described as a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So why is Jesus coming to be baptized? Here's one answer that is not a good answer. You're like, oh, Jesus is coming to be forgiven, right? No, uh, well, there's so much in scripture about the sinlessness of Christ. In fact, we're gonna see his temptation in chapter four and his perfection in that temptation, his resisting of that as the perfect second Adam. And so Clearly, he has no sin to confess or to repent of in this baptism. So why does he come to be baptized? Luke doesn't actually give us much information on that. He just says that he came to be baptized just like everyone else was. He didn't have a private session with John. It's just simple. People are coming for John's baptism and here comes Jesus. It makes you wonder, uh, as Jesus walked up to John to be baptized, 
uh, what, what John thought until Jesus opened his mouth and began to talk to him. Um, and so you, you just think, you know, he's, he's presenting himself for the first time, really, and probably quite ordinary, like everyone else who was coming. That's how Luke presents it to us. It's ordinary coming to be baptized. But I think if we were to look at and just peek at the other accounts of Jesus' baptism, we might get some uh, help as to some reasons why Jesus is baptized. I think we can maybe say three things based on the other accounts about why Jesus is baptized. The first reason is to identify for John and the people who Jesus is. So in John chapter 1, where Luke, or sorry, where John, the apostle, tells us of Jesus' baptism, in John chapter 1, verse 31, we read this. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. So this is John the Baptist talking. So he came baptizing that Jesus might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the spirit descend, it, descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. And so it seems clear in John's account that Jesus' baptism identifies Jesus for Israel and it identifies Jesus for John the Baptist. He says, here's the one, he whom the Spirit comes upon and remains. And that happens at his baptism. The second reason for Jesus' baptism seems to be Jesus' identification with sinners. His identification with sinners. Jesus often identifies himself in various ways with, with his people. He's identified with Israel as the ultimate Israelite. Isaiah does that, prepares the way for that, as he speaks about Jesus as the servant of Yahweh. And yet he also speaks about Israel as the servant in a corporate sense. Of course, the Old Testament also makes correlations about how Israel, will be brought, or Israel was brought out of Egypt and that the Old Testament in Numbers 24, in Hosea, uh, Numbers 24 uh, speaks of the Messiah coming out of Egypt. Hosea 11, 1 picks up on that. Matthew 2 picks up on that. Uh, the New Testament then makes these connections of Israel identifying, or Jesus identifying with Israel. But not only that, he identifies with humanity by standing in the place of Adam, as a new Adam. And we're going to see that in the temptation narrative as he's tempted in the wilderness by Satan, similar to how Adam was tempted with Eve, and he is successful. In fact, Luke is going to connect Jesus to Adam in the end of his genealogy, taking us back to uh, Adam. So that seems to be... Uh, something that, that is common for the writers of Scripture to do to, to show Jesus' identification with different groups, especially with his people. And baptism itself is, a, is, is an identification, right? When, when a believer in Christ is baptized, they are identifying with Christ and with the church. So they are identifying that they are in union with Christ, and that's pictured really only in, in, in immersion as you go into the water, buried with him in death, and then come out of the water and raised to newness of life. 
so that is an identification, but it's also an identification with the church, with the body of Christ that you're being included into. So it seems as though this baptism, though Jesus not identifying uh, that he is a sinner, but he is identifying with sinners in this baptism. And so he is the one who is going to identify with sinners so as to bear their sins away. Jerov Davis says, Jesus is saying that he has come to stand in the place of sinners. In his baptism, Jesus commits himself to take the sinner's place. And so, I think in a general sense, we might say that Jesus is identifying with sinners, though he is not a sinner, by being baptized in a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And the third reason is it found in Matthew's account in Matthew chapter 3, verse 15. Matthew 3, verse 15, and, and just for the context, starting in verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. Of course, then we have the rest of the account, which is similar to Luke's at at that point. The third reason is for Jesus to fulfill all righteousness. That's what it says. Well, what what does that mean? Well, he is conforming to uh, obedience to God, conforming to the standard of God. And in this case, for Jesus, he... Uh, needs to be baptized in this way, to obey the Father. John chapter 15, verse 10 says, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept the Father's commandments and abide in his love. The takeaway is that Jesus has always obeyed the Father's will. He's always obeyed what the Father commands of him. Now, this is helpful because, I don't know if you ever thought about this question, why didn't Jesus, in accomplishing redemption, uh, just come as a man? Like not born, it's already miraculous, a miraculous conception. Why doesn't he appear like Adam as a full-grown adult, teach for one day, die the second day, and raise the third day? Why live a whole human life and then die, raise, and ascend? Well, I think part of the answer, there's probably multiple answers to this, but part of the answer is that he didn't just come to die for us. He came to live for us. He came to live in obedience to the law of God because we are lawless people. So there is this discussion of both the active obedience of Christ, where he actively obeys the commands of God on our behalf, and the passive obedience of Christ, where he takes upon himself the wrath that's due for the sins that we have committed. And we talk about this a lot because it's such a precious truth for us and at the core of what Christ has accomplished. Not only do we have to have a clean record, in other words, if we have sinned against God, there must be a penalty for that. And that's what Christ pays for on the cross. But God also demands that we be obedient, that we have a righteous standing. And so there needs to be obedience to the law. That's what he required of Adam in the garden, gave him a command specifically. And so Christ as the last Adam comes and he obeys, he fulfills all righteousness 
so that he might impute or reckon or count credit to us that righteousness that he earned. So it's not like a fictitious righteousness that God gives us. It is an actual lived righteousness of, a, of, of the man Christ Jesus who obeys the law. And so here is one evidence of that and a key text in Matthew's gospel that says in his baptism, he is about fulfilling all righteousness. Of course, in Isaiah 53 verse 10, it speaks of the suffering servant accounting many to be righteous. Accounting many to be righteous by his work. And righteousness is then imputed to the sinner. This is so amazing. This is so great. I mean, we just love to talk about this. You're like, Robert, you talk about this all the time. Yeah, because it's so good, right? Don't you need to hear this over and over again? That when God looks at you, he sees Christ. <laughs> that he sees righteousness, a life of righteousness and no sin. That's positionally how God views us. Paul said, ah, I want to know him and the power of his resurrection. And he wanted to ha have this righteousness, not his own, derived from his obedience, but that which comes through faith in Christ, this righteousness of Christ given to him. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And to summarize, in Jesus' baptism, we see the one who identifies with us and is able to impute righteousness to us. And so both this cleansing and this crediting work is what Jesus came to do and what he begins in his public ministry. And so he lives a whole life. He, he obeys at every point throughout his growing up and throughout the entirety of his life, and God credits that to us. He's a representative, just like Adam was. Our guilt uh, or, or uh, sorry, Adam's guilt is our guilt, but Christ's righteousness is our righteousness. This is at the very heart of the gospel. He's died for us and he has lived for us. Now, as Jesus is praying during his baptism, you see these acts, right? His act of being baptized, of being, uh, being baptized to identify, to identify himself, to identify with sinners, and then to impute his righteousness that he's earned to sinners. But we also see his action of praying. But as he's doing that, as he's praying, an incredible sight and sound begin to occur. It says the heaven, heaven was opened. The heavens were opened. It's like they were unzipped. They were torn back. I mean, what does that look like? And if it's during the day, is there just more blue behind the blue? Is it, if it's during the night, is it more black behind the black? If it's blue, is it, is it black? Is it, is it bright light? What is that? We don't know. I mean, this would be incredible. What, what was this sight like? Well, in scripture, when the heavens are torn apart, that language, big things happen. Often revelation is being given. It happens for Ezekiel. Heavens are torn apart. Ezekiel 1.1. It, uh, it, remember for Jacob, uh, he saw the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. It happens for Stephen as he is uh, being martyred and he looks up and he sees heaven opened and Jesus standing there. Uh, we see it for John, the apostle in Revelation 
as the heavens are opened and he gets these visions, he sees what God is doing. Revelation 4.1 and 19.11. And so revelation is about to come. That's the point of the heavens being opened. And it's going to come in a visual way and in a verbal way. This is the son's baptism. And so the son is acting. He hears his actions in the baptism and his prayer. But at the same moment, the spirit is working as well. And, and this leads us now to the spirit's anointing. The son's actions, the spirit's anointing. Verse 22, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. This is a theophany, a visible manifestation of the invisible God. Here the Spirit takes on some visible form for this anointing. But notice that it, it doesn't say that the Holy Spirit is a dove, but came like a dove, right? That's a simile. It is a metaphor, or simile and metaphor. It is a figure of speech, which is a simile. Metaphors without like or as. Uh, so most likely, it seems as though the Spirit coming as a dove, like a dove, is the way in which the dove comes down upon Jesus. And lots of speculation, why a dove? Many people have made, some have connected this to Noah in the ark as he sends out a dove. Uh, and there's uh, hope given as it brings back a news of uh, a new creation after the flood. Possible, hard to prove that connection. A better, I think, a connection, if there is one, maybe to Genesis 1-2, where it says the, the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And you have the creation account where the, the Spirit is at work in that. Of course, the triune God is involved in the one act of creation. The Father is speaking out his word. The word is the Son, right? He speaks his word, and this Holy Spirit is hovering over the waters. And so they're at work there. That seems to be uh, a connection of how the Spirit comes and descends. But why does the Spirit come upon Jesus at this time? Why does the Spirit come at this time? It was to anoint and empower Jesus for his public ministry. And so same author, Luke, in Acts chapter 10, just says this very clearly. In Acts chapter 10, verse 37, he says, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. So this is what it's about. This is why the Spirit comes, to anoint Jesus and empower Jesus for his public ministry. The title Christ is, well, number one, it is a title, right? We know that. Uh, it's not his last name. It is a title, and it's related to the Hebrew word Messiah, uh, Mashiach. And, and so it's this idea of an anointed one. That's the idea. And, of course, we connect it to the Messiah. The Messiah is the anointed one. Just another reference of Luke's in Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, verse 26. 
The kings of the earth set themselves. The rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. God is the one who anointed. And yet, it's the Spirit who anointed. So even there, you can see the way, just similar to Acts 5, speaking about Ananias' fire lying to the Holy Spirit. And then it says, they, you haven't lied to men, but you've lied to God. It's connecting the Spirit as truly God. Here's the same. It's God who anoints, and yet it's the Spirit who is doing the anointing. Answer, yes. <laughs> the, 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 God is anointing, and it's the person of the Spirit in particular who's highlighted. Now, this anointing was often the case for prophets, for priests, for judges, uh, kings, anointed with oil in the Old Testament. And the Holy Spirit would come upon individuals and empower them for a particular ministry, for a particular time. And yet, even in the Old Testament, there was a uniqueness to the Messiah's anointing and empowerment by the Spirit in a special way. Uh, such that John can summarize the Old Testament's teaching in John 3.34 and say this about Jesus, for he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the spirit without measure. And so he has the spirit without measure. Now, the Old Testament points in this direction of the anointing and empowerment of the Messiah by the spirit. Isaiah 42, Isaiah 42 verse one. This is, I think the first servant song Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. And he will bring forth justice to the nations. Of course, Isaiah 61. Isaiah 61, verse 1. The spirit of the Lord, Yahweh, is upon me, because Yahweh has anointed me to bring good news to the poor sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Jesus is going to quote that in the synagogue in Luke chapter 4. But the point in the beginning is that the spirit of God is upon him and anointing him. And then Isaiah 11. Isaiah 11, of course. Verse 2. And the spirit of Yahweh shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding the spirit of counsel and might, spirit of knowledge and the fear of Yahweh. And, he shall, and his delight shall be in the fear of Yahweh. So the spirit of God coming upon the Son, empowering him in a special way. And what you'll see if you notice in the ministry of Jesus is look for the spirit's work in the ministry of Jesus at key points throughout his ministry, highlighting that the spirit is at work all throughout his ministry. As Jesus does his work in his ministry, he's doing it in the power of the Holy Spirit as a man dependent upon the Spirit. Of course, his, the Holy Spirit is at work in his birth, uh, in his miracles. In fact, later, Jesus will point out how the Pharisees and the religious leaders are attributing his work to Satan. They're saying, you are casting out demons by the power of Satan. That's what you're doing. And he's saying, this is the ultimate rejection because everything I'm doing is in the power of the Spirit. And so for you to say that what I'm doing is by the devil is not only nonsensical, but is the ultimate rejection 
And you'll notice then that in Matthew's gospel, he begins to give these kingdom parables because it's, it's clear at this point that Israel has rejected her Messiah. But the point to be taken is the Spirit comes and, and the Son is going to be dependent upon the Spirit throughout his ministry. Of course, this is the same spirit that Jesus would promise to his disciples who would empower the church for their ministry to work for God. Tells them to wait in Luke 24 for the spirit and then it tells them to wait in Acts chapter one for the spirit to come upon them to do their work in the great commission. It is the spirit that God has empowered us with to fulfill what he has called us to do. But notice one other thing about the spirit coming upon the son. Paul tells us in Romans five verse five, he says, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. It's as if to say, the way God shows his love is by giving the Spirit. The way the Father shows the love, uh, his love is by giving the Spirit. So here is the Father giving the Spirit to the Son as a demonstration of his love. The Father loves the Son through the Spirit, and the Son enjoys being the beloved of the Father. Michael Reeves has a great book, very devotional, called Delighting in the Trinity. And he writes this about this very point. He says, the Spirit stirs up the delight of the Father in the Son, and the delight of the Son in the Father, inflaming their love and so binding them together in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is the one through whom the Father loves, blesses, and empowers his Son. The Son goes out from the Father by the Spirit. And so here we see these persons as they love one another and are loved. Reeves will go on later to speak about a particular theologian who died in 1173. Uh, his name was Richard of St. Victor. And he wrote some profound things about the Trinity and especially about the love uh, of the Trinity for himself. Uh, you know, the, the divine nature manifested in three distinct persons expressing love. And here's how Reeves summarizes his thoughts of Richard, the thoughts of Richard. He says, Richard argued that if God were just one person, he could not be intrinsically loving. Since for all eternity before creation, he would have had nobody to love. If, but then he goes on and says, if there were two persons, God might be loving, but in an excluding, ungenerous way. After all, when two persons love each other, they can be so infatuated with each other that they simply ignore everyone else. And a God like that would be very far from good news. But when the love between two persons is happy, healthy, and secure, they rejoice to share it. Just so it is with God. They rejoice to share it. Being perfectly loving from all eternity the Father and the Son have delighted to share their love and joy with and through the Spirit. It is not then that God becomes sharing, being tri uh, that he becomes sharing, but being triune, God is a sharing God, a God who loves to include. Indeed, that is why God will go on to create. His love is not for keeping, 
but for spreading. That is, that is profound to, to think about the triune God, the three persons enjoying one another's love and, and spreading out. God is not needy and therefore needing to create a world to have people to love him and to love. God is loved from all eternity. Now, why does all this matter? You think, you know, okay, this is, this is like heady stuff, but just think how practical this is and what kind of a different gospel you get if you don't have this God. Everything comes back to the doctrine of God, right? Maybe your conception of God is kind of like the divine traffic cop, right? Who's just looking to find infractions in your life and ticket you, you know? You slow down when you get close. You see him in the distance, oh, you gotta slow down. Do the speed limit. That kind of a conception of God is gonna lead us to a certain uh, way of acting with God. When the Bible describes God, he is described as the fountain of life brimming with life, the fullness of being, uh, of of eternal love, who uh, expresses that love outwardly. In other words, God needs nothing from us. He just simply delights to give to us. He's the ultimate generous one. And so when you think about this God this way, and you can see it manifested in the triune relation, you begin to see this is who God is at at the base. This is who God is fundamentally. He's a God who loves to give out of who he is. Now, Satan, on the other hand, is a God who loves to take. And he just wants to take more and more and more and to suck in from those whom he would, uh, whom he would deceive. But not so the true God. The true God needs nothing from us but simply delights to give and to give and to give and to give of himself. This begins to tell us and show us what life is about and what the good news is about. It's about the triune God giving us himself. It's about him creating a world to be a theater for his glory, for us to behold so as to see more of him, see more of his character. And so we, we start to see this manifestation of the triune God loving uh, and, and demonstrating love for one another. And, and, and it is that that we get brought into as well. So this is the Spirit's anointing as an expression even of the Father's love. And, and this is finally what we see in the last point, the Father's affirmation. The Father's affirmation. The middle of verse 22. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. We saw the visible revelation. Now we see here a verbal revelation. The Father's approval and affirmation of the Son. Here is the Father's pleasure in His Son. There's certainly connection to Psalm 2, verse 7 here, which connects Jesus as Israel's king. God recognizes him as such. The Lord's anointed. Today I've begotten you. That language of begotten is not the idea of him coming into existence, but you're talking about the eternal God. So it's an eternal begetting, which just like blows our circuits. But he is forever, the idea is he's, the Father's forever giving of his essence to the Son. And you're like, well, that's hard to grasp. Yes, of course it is, but, but it's forever taking place. It never begins. There's never a time when the Father does not have a Son, and there's never a time when the Son does not have the Father. It, to be a father means you have to have a son. 
And that's what somewhat of, is what is being communicated to us in that language. But here's the point that Luke is making, that Jesus is the loved son of the Father. You are my beloved son. The Father has loved the Son eternally. And, and one of the great expressions of this is in John chapter 17. We read, You have, 1724, you loved me before the foundation of the world. So you think, what was God doing? What was the triune God doing before he created? Or put it this way, what is God like? And, and maybe we'll, in these crass terms, what is God like at home? Like, you know, you, you are like you when you're out in public and when you go out, but, but maybe you're, the same, hopefully, at home <laughs> as you are when you go out. But sometimes people are different at home. But, but what is God like before he creates anything? What is God like in himself? We see his character refracted in creation and, and we see him at work, but what is he like in himself, Father, Son, and Spirit? Well, part of that answer is he's loving. He loves his son eternally. God speaks again the same way in the transfiguration. This is my beloved son. Sometimes we might fear, you know, maybe I'm going to get bored of, of the son and just learn, I'm going to learn everything there is to know, you know, about the son and how are we going to continue to grow in depth of love for him and knowledge of him for all eternity. Well, think about it like this. The son, the eternal son, has forever satisfied the father from all eternity. He's forever been the delight and the love, uh, the beloved of the Father. And the Son has forever been the loved one of the Father. So if that doesn't exhaust the Father's interest, if the Son doesn't exhaust the Father's interest, surely he won't exhaust our interest as well. Oh, there are depths beyond us to enjoy and continue to enjoy of the Son. The, the Son can surely satisfy us forever. Now, it's no wonder then that in the ministry of the Holy Spirit, as Jesus describes him, that the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to point to the Son, to remind the disciples what the Son has said, and to, to point people to Christ. John 15, 26, 16, 13, and 14. He's to point to Christ. So I heard one person say once, actually, uh, a, a, a preacher says, if, if you see a ministry that's excessively focused on the Holy Spirit, it probably does not understand the ministry of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> the, what they're saying is, what is the ministry of the Holy Spirit according to Jesus? To point to Jesus, right? To point to more of Christ. So if you see Christ being lauded and, and, and focused upon, it is an evidence that the Spirit is doing his job. He's, he's pointing to Christ, obviously that statement was probably made for shock value as well, but we can think about the Spirit. We're doing that right now. It's totally okay. But the point is, the Spirit's job is to point us to Christ, the beloved. Now, here is what is so amazing about all this work that we do, okay? The Father loves his Son from all eternity. And this is where the gospel comes in and intersects with this truth and just makes it so relevant to us. In Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, we read this. But when the fullness of time had come, 
God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. It's like reading a will, you know, it's like, and you just discovered you get everything. <laughs> I mean, this is incredible. What, what this is saying is that the father from all eternity has had his son, his beloved. He's loved the son. And the son has been the recipient of the father's love. But in the gospel, as we trust in Christ, we are forgiven of our sins, credited with righteousness. We are in union with Christ. Now the father looks upon us in the way that he looks upon his son. Therefore, the father can say of you, this is my beloved in whom I'm well pleased. You are my beloved in whom I'm well pleased. Can you imagine God saying that to you? And yet it is true because of our union with Christ. Because we are in, think about it, Paul speaks about every spiritual blessing that is ours in Christ. And then he later says in verse six that we are in the beloved. Every blessing comes to us in the beloved. So if you are in the beloved one, you are beloved by the Father. This is the, the incredible nature of the gospel, that God would look upon you and me and say, you are my beloved one, and I am well pleased with you. Is God well pleasing? Is, are you well pleasing to God? Now, you could think about that positionally and practically. Of course, there is a category of practical uh, uh, sanctification where we want to be pleasing to God. Paul says we make it our aim to please him. But fundamentally, positionally, God is pleased with you, Christian. How great is that? Did you have a terrible week? God doesn't love you any less. Did you have a great week? God doesn't love you any more. Why? Because you're in the beloved. And in the beloved, you are loved. He says of the son, in you I am well pleased. In you I'm well pleased. This is spoken over us as well if we're in Christ. He is for us in Christ. John Calvin used the story of Jacob from Genesis 27 to make this point. I think I've used this before. So good though. He says, as Jacob did not of himself deserve the right of the firstborn, concealed it in his brother's clothing and wearing his brother's coat, which gave out an agreeable odor. <laughs> he ingratiated himself with his father so that to his own benefit, he received the blessing while impersonating another. And we in like manner hide under the precious purity of our firstborn brother, Christ, so that we may be attested righteous in God's sight. And this is indeed the truth. For in order that we may appear before God's face unto salvation, we must swell, smell sweetly with his odor. And our vices must be covered and buried by his perfection. Like, <laughs> this is kind of a strange illustration he picks up because he's saying like, just like Jacob got the blessing because he impersonated Esau, whom uh, was the firstborn and was going to be blessed by Isaac. He's saying, we get the blessing of the firstborn because it's like we're impersonating Christ. 
but in a totally just way because God has included us in Christ, brought us into Christ by the Spirit. And so now he looks upon us, but he sees and he smells Christ. And so he blesses us because we're in Christ. We're in the beloved, therefore we're blessed as the beloved. Incredible. Now, last thing. Notice that the Father speaks directly to the Son. And we simply listen in on the conversation. What I mean is, he doesn't say, with him I am well pleased. That would be for our instruction, principally. With him, with the Messiah, I'm well pleased. He says, with you, I'm well pleased. And everyone else just gets to listen to this Trinitarian conversation as the Father speaks to his son and says, with you, I am well pleased. And I just, this just made me think. Like last night, isn't this a hint at the very purpose of creation and what God is doing to allow us to listen in on the Trinitarian conversation and to enjoy that? For, For God to say, I just want you to listen to this. Son, I am well pleased with you. In education, maybe especially in homeschool, you know, education, they talk about entering into the great conversation, right? The great conversation of of writers and historians and thinkers, and you are going to enter into that conversation and you're gonna learn about those great thinkers and you're gonna maybe add your contribution as well, but, but you're gonna enter into the great conversation. Well, this is truly the great conversation, the conversation between the Father and the Son through the Spirit, the eternal conversation. And we enter into that great conversation. We enter into that and we listen to that. This is the essence of salvation. It is hearing this triune conversation and coming to experience it in part. And this is what Jesus says in John chapter 17, verse 24. He says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them." Nothing greater for us than to know about this intra-Trinitarian fullness, this life and love of the Trinity before creation. There's nothing greater for us to experience than be brought to taste in part this life and this fullness, to hear and enter into this conversation. For this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Father, we thank you for your Son and your Spirit's empowerment anointing. We thank you for your love that, Father, is for your Son forever and for his enjoyment of your love through the Spirit. And we stand in awe of the reality that your Scripture tells us about. We wouldn't believe it unless it was in the Scriptures that we could, in some way, as a finite creature, enter into this conversation and be included in some way as your sons adopted by you through Christ's perfect life and his death. And we marvel at this reality. Lord, thank you for the gospel. May you help us to grow deeper in our knowledge of you, which is eternal life. In Jesus' name, amen.